This podcast is sponsored by Mass Mutual. Every way we look out for the ones we love is an act of mutuality. Mass Mutual can help with the financial ones. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. This is Queer Money. As our regular listeners know, we often like to interview on Queer Money other queer people who are living their best lives on their own terms. That's why we had to interview Matt Baum and why we're so appreciative that he agreed to our interview request. If you want to learn how to turn your loves into your career, this is the show for you. Matt is a gay man from Seattle who has learned how to turn his unique interests, anything from gaming to drag queens playing Dungeons and Dragons, into a career. Matt has a wonderful YouTube channel on which he covers anything from the entertaining to the political. He hosts two podcasts, Queens of Adventures, which is a live recording of drag queens actually playing Dungeons and Dragons, and Sewers of Paris, on which he interviews gay men from all walks of life, including yours truly, to learn how entertainment influenced our stories of growing up gay in America. Matt's also a writer whose work has appeared in The Advocate and many other prominent publications, and he's a published author, having written Defining Marriage, Voices from a 40-Year Labor of Love. If you like this episode, please take a screenshot on your phone of this episode, share it on Instagram along with your favorite point or quote from today's show, and tag at Queer Money Podcast. Here we go. Welcome, Matt Baum, to Queer Money. We love having you. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Exactly. So you are a, a writer, a podcaster, or a content creator, an author. You're, you're like all over the board. So Renaissance. when somebody says, <laughs> they meet you for the first time at a bar and they say, what do you do? What do you tell them? I mean, that kind of sums it up, a little of everything. Uh, I make stuff for the internet, basically. Uh, I've got, <laughs> I like that. I've got usually LGBT content. So I've got a show called Queens of Adventure, where a bunch of drag queens play an ongoing Dungeons and Dragons adventure. <laughs> We've got The Sewers of Paris, which is a, more of an interview show where I talk to queer people about the entertainment that's changed their lives. I do uh, a lot of photos and writing for outlets like Rolling Stone and The Advocate and Vice Magazine and PR. And I wrote a book called Defining Marriage, which is personal stories from people who fought for the freedom to marry over the last 40 years. Nice. So you definitely run the gamut. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep, yep. If it's on the internet and gay, I want to have my fingers on it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So I've noticed from you know looking at your work over the last couple of days that you really like to merge, at least it seems from my perspective, that you like to merge different cultures. I mean, you're merging LGBT people and gaming. You've brought drag queens into Dungeons and Dragons. Where does this inspiration come from? Why do you have all this diversity that you're trying to bring into sort of your content creation? Well, you know, I guess what it comes down to is the thing that is very rewarding for me and the thing that my audience seems to really enjoy is unexpected connections between people, like you just said. But when you realize, oh, this person who seems like they're a billion miles away, who'd have guessed, but we actually have a lot in common. The queer culture and game culture is a really great example, particularly with drag queens and Dungeons and Dragons, because these are two groups that you would think, well, what would they have to say to each other? <laughs> uh, but these are both communities that are all about creating a character, expressing something about working together with a group to augment each other's skills and abilities, improvising and making stuff up and having a good time, basically. So I really enjoy finding our connections between each other. And I think people are sort of hardwired, you know, biologically to form tribes. And sometimes a uh, part of that that people can get stuck in is exclusion and right. say it's us versus them or this is my group and I don't want to have anything to do with those people are in opposition. And it's nice when you can break through that. Not everybody wants to, but I want to be there for the people who are like, I want to understand something new. Nice. Yeah, definitely. I, I love think, that perspective. Yeah. I think that there's that used over and over again. It's almost becoming cliche that we have more in common than we have different. You're shining a light on it and saying, here's two incredibly different groups of people or individuals. And here's some intersectionality between them that can actually be entertaining, fun, and educational. Yeah, exactly. There is a webcomic series that's about a nerd and a jock and about how they're the best of friends. And it is so sweet. Mm. And I just love it so much because, you know, they're the two archetypes that are always in conflict. But this webcomic shows them like helping each other out and being good friends and having each other's back. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that's the world I want. That's what I, like. <laughs> I just I have to that. say that that reminds me of Breakfast Club. It just kind of this, yes. you force people to get into the same room and you they all of a sudden become best of friends. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I want Breakfast Club rather than no exit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So what two disparate groups did you find were the easiest to bring together? Honestly, right now, D&D &D and drag is my favorite one because I've been working in the drag world for a very long time, not as a performer, but as a photographer. 
and a journalist. So going to shows and getting to know performers and writing about their work and capturing as much as one can in a photograph, the experience of being there. I love drag as an art form. And my partner, James, is a game designer and game producer. And he's done a lot of work in interactive media and just having fun. And, you know, we had our own professional worlds. And it's relatively recent that we've started to merge them and discover, you know, not only are these cultures very similar, but it's something that my partner and I have in common that we can enjoy together. And the relationship gets deeper. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, yeah. We've also, you know, something that you may have discovered is that working professionally with your life partner is often a method to discover a whole new world of things to argue about. <laughs> exactly. Don't yeah. laugh too loud, I, Mr. Alton. This has been happy bliss yeah, here. Right. <laughs> I will say, though, that at the same time, argue, but it also gives us an opportunity to really build our relationship. John and I working together because there are so many times when we can see each other's weaknesses and strengths, and we call on each other for that. And I think that that's, especially when working on a project together, that's when you really kind of grow close together. Mm, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I've interviewed this couple in San Francisco who have, I think it's called the Gay Couples Institute or LGBT Couples Institute, who do a lot of research into what makes for a strong relationship. And one of the things they always come back to, Sam and Alapaki are the two guys who run it, are shared meaning. You find the things that you both find meaningful that you can do together. And it could be something as simple as a song or a memory or going on a walk, or it could be something that you build. Like it could be having a child. It could be having a garden. You know, the thing that you're like, the both of us together love this thing. <laughs> My right. partner, James, and I were just watching the movie Mamma Mia and talking about our feelings about that movie, which are complex. Uh, <laughs> and I am not, I certainly wouldn't say like Mamma Mia is our movie because it is not. But like our thoughts about the magnificence of Christine Baranski, for example, that is a point at which I feel like we have shared meaning. It's <laughs> interesting. So for all of our straight listeners out there, this is just a reminder that our lives are not just about sex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, we got a lot more going on. Yeah, yeah they're also about ABBA. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yes, a lot about ABBA. We know from people that reach out to us on social media or who email us directly, and they feel stuck in their careers. They're in jobs they don't like. They follow the prescription of going to high school, going to college, and then getting a job at a W-2 somewhere, and they just are not happy. And I think you act as an inspiration for people who want to sort of create their own world. How have you been able to successfully merge all your interests together into a business, or maybe even businesses, you might call it? I was in a similar position where I was doing office work and, you know, it wasn't work that I hated, but I knew that there was something that I liked more. And with hindsight now, I would say that the way to do it that I would recommend is building a sort of launch pad for yourself while you are in stable employment. There's a YouTuber slash podcaster named CGP Gray who talks about this a bit a show called Hello Internet and another one called Cortex, where he talks a little bit about productivity and creation and being your own boss, because it is very stressful. I mean, on one hand, it's wonderful to wake up and be like, I'm going to do the work that matters to me. But also that means all the stress of being from the CEO down to the lowest level employee all at once. Anyway, having a pre-existing launchpad. So, you know, obviously don't just like quit your job and be like, I'm going to write the great American novel or whatever. Sometimes this involves doing unpaid work, which I'm not a huge advocate of. But if it's for a greater purpose, then you have a decision to make. Am I going to do this? Am I going to basically be a volunteer? That's sort of how I got started is just writing for free on other blogs kind of as a just for fun thing. And then gradually over time, I was like, oh, I like this. And now I'm starting to make a little bit of money on this. And I've got connections. I know the industry and I know people and I know how to do a good job at writing. I know how to be a good writer. And so I'm going to give it a shot now that I've established this sort of like arsenal of tools or tool bag to get me up and out there. But a big part of that is also being very deliberate about what an audience wants. You know, I'm in kind of a unique line of work in that I'm, I'm making things directly for an audience, and that's not the career that everybody wants. I mean, you might want to leave your office job to work with animals, or you might want to leave it to be an architect or whatever. I guess part of my process is always thinking about where does the money come from? It's easy when you're thinking about like daydreaming about like, I'm going to leave the office job and just do what fulfills me. Well, being fulfilled is great, but you also got to put food on the table. Uh, yes. So, you know, part of that is the nitty gritty day to day of where's the money coming from? You know, am I getting a good return on investment for the work that I'm doing? You do some work for clients. And so I always am evaluating my clients and saying this outlet that I'm writing for, do I want to be writing for them? 
Are they paying me what I think I'm worth? Does it reflect well on me to be associated with this client? And, you know, occasionally I will shake up my stable of outlets that I'm writing for and also think about like of my own projects, my own stuff that I'm doing. How is it performing and how can it perform better? It's not just chasing the dream of doing the work. It's also performing the due diligence of making sure that the work can support you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I have to reiterate, when we started our business, I don't think that David and I necessarily thought about, we became the every person. So we answer the legal questions, we have to fill out the tax forms, we have to you know, schedule the appointments with people. So it's not just about the content creation, it's not just about the end results that everybody sees, but there's a lot of legwork and time and effort. Some days we're looking at contracts and it can take up way more than I ever expected it to do because I don't simply understand the contract. So then we had to hire you know, an attorney. So there's a lot to build up that business. But I like your recommendation of you know, have a W-2 or have a steady stream of income before you decide to launch, you know, build that launch pad first. Yeah, exactly. Having a little bit saved up goes a long way. Definitely. Yeah, I think that the two points there having something saved in your reserves kind of as your backup plan, having some sort of current income, and then creating your launch pad, because you've got to have something today to be able to jump off from, right? Everyone, whether it's doing freelance writing, or you're trying to become a brand ambassador or create your own content, you've got to have an audience that you can bring with you wherever it is you go. And a lot of times those companies, that's what they want, is they want you to bring your audience to their platform as well. Sure. And that's something to think about if you have an online platform is to, you know, I was going to use the word protective, and that may not be exactly the right word. But now that I think about it, I think it is actually not like, no, they're my people, they're my followers, you can't have them. But, you know, to think about your obligation to the people who have expressed an interest and want to engage with what you're putting out, that is incredibly valuable and so wonderful. And I'm grateful every day to the people who are following me on Twitter and following the podcasts. Most of all, the people who are pledging money on Patreon and Kickstarter for the various things that I've done to make sure that I am being good to them and <laughs> being considerate of their time and attention and money and giving them something that I think they will love. Right. They've put their trust and in, in a certain sense, their belief in you and what your message is or your entertainment value. And if you betray that, <laughs> well, it doesn't take long for you to lose all those people. <laughs> Exactly. You know, when I was writing for Esophist, which is a website in San Francisco, there was often a conflict. This is where I learned journalism was just by blogging. I had good connections with people who worked in city government, and they clearly wanted me to tell a certain story about the work the government was doing. And that was the first time that I realized, oh, but I have an obligation to the readers first, even though at the time I wasn't being paid, but I have an obligation to them because they are paying me in their attention and their engagement and the community that I'm speaking to. So you know, my responsibility is first to them to report accurately and to report impartially rather than to my sources who are giving me something, you know, the valuable information that makes my job more exciting. Exactly. Do you find when you look at your career now, the content that you're creating now, do you find that it's successful because you're creating content for people like you with similar interests? Yes and no. Some of the content that I do is definitely I'm speaking to other me's and I love that. And some of what I make, we are speaking to people who have very different experiences and I love that. So I do a series on YouTube called Culture Cruise where I talk about LGBTQ themes in movies, in TV, in games. And so once a month I put out a video, I'm about to put out one about Mary Tyler Moore as she had a gay episode. I did one about Golden Girls. Golden I did Girls. one about the Simpsons <laughs> episode with John Waters. I was expecting with those videos for it to be folks like me. And what I'm finding is that it's super diverse. There are women and other genders watching. There are people from all different ages, people who are like, oh, I remember when this episode of Mary Tyler Moore aired. And also people who are saying, what exactly was the Mary Tyler Moore show? <laughs> so it's, it's a real delight. A um, and it's also with Queens of Adventure, our podcast with the drag queens, really diverse audience, people with very different backgrounds. And I really enjoyed seeing how many different people are interested in what we're doing there? Because my fear was like, oh, well, these are two very different circles. And what I found is like these circles, when they push together, they're almost not even a Venn diagram anymore. It's just like two circles completely meeting and overlapping. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. So do you assume or do you know that you had some pretty straight acting gamers coming to originally the theater when you were doing it live or now coming to your podcast who didn't have exposure to drag queens until you presented to them to them? Yeah, occasionally we'll hear from people who are like, this is my first drag experience. This is my first drag show. I don't really know anything about drag. 
I can't even describe how thrilled I am for this show to be someone's entry into that world and for us to be able to introduce somebody. It's easy to be like, oh, you don't know about this? Well, that means you're not one of us. You're not welcome. And my approach is definitely, whether it's drag or, I don't know, the movie Mommy Dearest or whatever it is, not to be like, oh, you haven't seen that? Oh, well, you should have. But instead to be like, how fortunate that you get to experience this for the first time and how fortunate I feel to be the one to accompany you on this journey and for the doors to open up and to welcome you into this big queer world that I love to swim in. That's how I felt when I presented David to Gone with the Wind. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> he had never I seen it I saw it, it last before. year for the first time. <laughs> so I, I never understood what fiddly D meant and how important it was to John. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think now? Like, what was it like to see it for the first time? <laughs> well, to be honest, I'm not a fan of the movie. I don't necessarily need to see it again. I know that there will be some moans and gnashing of teeth based on what I just said. But I think, you know, based on like your podcast, Sewers of Paris, I think that movies and books and entertainment affects us differently. And that one didn't just resonate with me as much as others. <laughs> <laughs> sure. But you have the experience now. Now you get the references. Yep, exactly. But he did love Simon. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. So that's a great segue into our next question. You know, Sewers of Paris shares stories of gay men and the books or the movies or the music, whatever, that resonated most with them in their lives. Why do you think the queer people, and I think specifically gay men, gravitate so much towards the arts or pop cultures and including, you know, divas like, you know, Cher and Madonna? Yeah, it's interesting. I don't think anybody has the answer to that. And I wonder how much of that is that people in general gravitate toward the arts and queer people might feel more freedom to allow themselves to experience creative works, either as creators themselves or as uh, aesthetes or appreciators. I think part of it is just, you know, natural human interest in hearing and telling stories. One of the great advantages of being queer is that there's social pressure to do or not do something. You can choose whether or not you're going to go along with that pressure. You know, I feel pity for the people who are affected by social pressure that I think heterosexual men might feel not to be interested in things that are pretty. So, you know, oh, it's not manly. I shouldn't be interested in that. Right. I like that as a queer person, there's a little bit of a release of the pressure valve once you decide like, okay, yes, I'm going to live the life that I want to lead, not try to conform to expectations. That having been said, I wonder how much the closet is responsible for that. And again, I don't know, but that we are always going to be a minority, even in the most welcoming of environments, there's always going to be fewer of us. And I think we will always be aware that we don't quite fit in with the people around us and we have different experiences and different interests. So I think part of that difference plants a little germ or a seed for us to either need to express something or need to find kinship through creative expression. And sometimes movies and books and TV shows are there for us to understand that difference before we have the words for it, before we're ready to talk about it, before we understand it fully. So our vocabulary can be the movies that we love rather than trying to figure out our feelings and articulate them. In the same way that I think for example, a wedding ceremony is a way of articulating feelings that are so enormous, we simply don't have words for them. I think sometimes a movie or book or just a good TV show can be a way to express feelings that are too enormous for us to say out loud. I think I agree with the latter, especially from my personal experience. I think growing up where I came from and the time that I did, it was only because of things that I saw in the movies or MTV, specifically Madonna, that I saw another option, I guess. Even like you said, before I was able to articulate it, why did I gravitate so much towards this woman with whom I have nothing in common? But eventually I realized, oh, I wasn't sexually attracted to her. I wanted to be her. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. There's, uh, I can't remember who it was that I was just listening to. Some interview where someone was talking about when he was very young, watching older boys and thinking, boy, they're just so cool. They're just so neat. I wish I could be more like them. And then realizing as a teenager, oh, I didn't just want to be like them. I wanted to be with them. Yes. So, and that's, you know, an effect of being a minority and not always having as many role models as we need. Right. Our story isn't being told, but somehow we seem to find a bit of our story being told through other characters. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes they're queer characters and sometimes they're characters who are secretly queer or obliquely queer. Right. Yeah. 
Here's a quick word from our sponsor. If, like us, you're getting to a time in your life when you're starting to think about the financial ways of protecting your loved ones, MassMutual is there to help. Now let's get back to the show. Now today, it seems like we've got much more of a presence of LGBT people in the arts and TVs and movies. From my perspective, it's great. What would you say that the state of queer culture is today? Oh, I think it's great. Better than it has been in a long, long time. Something that really delights me is how much freer we are with each passing year to tell queer stories that do not end in tragedy. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that we shouldn't tell those stories as well. But it's such a relief to see a same-sex storyline. For example, I'm thinking of the show Steven Universe, which just, no spoilers, but just had this was a show that was already super queer. And I was like, oh my God, how much gayer can this get? <laughs> um, so it just had a blissfully queer episode. And it's so nice to see something that isn't going to be a meditation on loss or indulging feelings of loneliness and coming to the conclusion that that's what we're doomed to always experience. You know, I think movies like Longtime Companion and My Beautiful Laundrette, yep. movies that are about the difficulty of being queer. I'm so happy to have more and more and more that is about like, oh yeah, yeah, it's actually, it's pretty great. I like it. <laughs> it's, it's a good thing. And you can be really happy. You know, I think John and I have talked about this several times in reference to the financial state of the queer community, but you look at the maturation of the queer community from, you know, back in the 20s and 30s, where it seemed like those individuals on movies were more often than not the funny man. They were the slapstick. They were the ones who people could laugh at. As we moved into the 50s and 60s, it seemed to be more of the villainous ones. And then in the 80s, uh, 90s, we became the tragedy. It seems like after 2000, or maybe mid to late 90s, we started to celebrate. We really started to be able to be celebrated in culture, I think in movies and TV especially. And now I think we're kind of moving to this self-aspirational portion where we can be the heroine. We can be the hero. We can be the savior. We can be the person who is the victor and win. And it is completely okay that that character is a queer character. Yeah. I love stories where queerness is a superpower. You know, I'm thinking of like Boys in the Band. That is a gay story by gay people, starring gay people. Everything about it was created by queer people and allies. And still, it is incredibly depressing. Even in a work like that, a play in a movie like that, gay is seen as a liability. That's not the case. And it's kind of very passe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we, can, we can be the heroes of our stories and not just our stories, but we can be the heroes of other people's stories. We're still waiting for you know mainstream media to catch up on that. You know, I'm still waiting, for example, Deadpool to come out of the closet or something like that. <laughs> please, please, please. <laughs> yeah. you know, So that'll happen. And I'm looking forward to seeing stories about how our queerness and our difference gives us strength. Yes. Right. Definitely. Well, you know, if the arts are a reflection of our culture, and we're all pretty excited about the direction that the arts are going with the LGBT community, then you're right. It does seem like we're evolving to a happy place for ourselves. We're no longer the victim. We're no longer the tragedy. We're no longer the villain. But we can actually be the superhero. I think even in the age of Trump, I still think it's a great direction that we're headed. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there are ups and downs in the swings of the pendulum between conservative culture and liberal culture and progressive culture. The dark times are tempered by the strength and resilience and endurance that we cultivate. Not to say that. We should embrace adversity and we should be grateful for the bad things that happen. But there are opportunities for those of us who have the privilege to be able to do this to make the best out of a bad thing, I guess, and build on our difficulties. You know, I'm thinking of like, I wrote a lot about marriage equality and a lot of the organizing that made marriage equality happen came out of the epidemic and people learning to organize around that. And finding their voice and finding communities and forming networks. In a million years, I would not say, well, good thing the epidemic happened. Right. But also, you know, coming out of that, those of us who survived it, I was still very young during the worst of it, but those of us who made it out the other side have an obligation to learn from it and to make sure that there is meaning to the tragedy that happened and that we can make something better in the future. That's a great segue to my next question. You did write a lot about it. You did some videos about it as well. Your book is called Defining Marriage, Voices from a 40-Year Labor of Love. I'm curious, 
you know, what your thoughts are on the state of marriage. Because, you know, I'm old enough to remember that the idea of same-sex couples getting married was kind of not hip in the LGBT community. We wanted to be more different than the general population. But that seemed to at first slowly change, and then all of a sudden it just rapidly changed. And all of a sudden we've got Republicans who worked with George W. Bush <laughs> advocating for same-sex marriage. What is your take on all that? Well, I'm deeply sympathetic to the critique of marriage as an institution. I did a video a while back about what traditional, in quotes, traditional marriage actually means and all the different things that marriage has been over centuries. And truly, some terrible, terrible things. Marriage has been awful at times in history. Right. Either as a means to subjugate women or people of color or as a way to legalize the abuse of people. So I'm very sympathetic to the queer argument that got a lot of steam, particularly in the 80s, but before that as well, that we can do better than marriage. I think ultimately what this conversation comes down to is when we talk about marriage, I think we're talking about two different things. We're talking about a legal means to protect ourselves, which is absolutely imperative that the law be applied in a way that is equal. There's obviously no rational basis for discriminating against queer people and telling you can't get married because the person's gender is wrong. Ridiculous. But we're also talking about marriage as a social agreement and what it does, you know, outside of all the paperwork and money, what it does for a relationship and the emotional bonds. Those are two super different things. I was at a dinner, this was many years ago, I think it was like 2006, maybe. It was the Harvey Milk Club in San Francisco had Angela Davis come and speak. And she said something along the lines of how it is possible to acknowledge the difference between being radically critical of marriage as an institution and also the moral imperative of legal equality. Anyway, this is a very long-winded answer to your question, but <laughs> back in the 80s when there was some conversation going, Evan Wolfson really got the ball rolling with a thesis at, I believe it was Harvard, or it might have been Yale, what at the time I think he referred to as same-sex marriage, like one word, same-sex, all one word, <laughs> marriage, basically laying the legal framework that decades later would be validated by the Supreme Court. There was a lot of pushback to him at that time saying, this is a patriarchal institution, it is psychologically damaging, we can do better. Now, I think we as a community, in order to get legal equality, recognize that there are LGBTQ plus people who want that, who don't feel that there is a need to do better, who don't think that there is a better to do, that are like, yes, that is exactly what I want, that legal equality, that binary two people, you know, joined together for life. That's it. There is no better. That's what I want. And if that's what you want, great, fantastic. Let's get that. Let's strive for that. Now that we've got it. I think we're in a position where, one, we need to protect it because no advance like that is ever completely safe. Mm -hmm. There are still forces that are talking about how they're going to overturn it. And two, I think a conversation can happen around, is there, maybe not better, but are there alternatives? Do you need to get married? Do you need to be exclusive? Is it possible to have a successful marriage that ends? These are questions I think that we can have now. And I don't know what the answers to any of those questions are. But now that we've secured equality, we can talk about like, well, what else is out there? What else can we do? The fact that you added the plus there in the LGBTQ is the fact that there are a lot of relationships out there that still cannot be represented legally in our country. And whether or not that happens, we make that kind of progress. We have to still recognize that they want to have their legal protections they want to have their unions recognized as well. And I guess similar to the criticism against many gay men is that social progress for our community did not stop with a marriage equality or did not stop with things that just are the L and the G. There are still others that want to make progress. And I think that's another area where we still have a lot of work to do is the ally communities that were there with us in many cases and, and not always, but ally communities who do not have full equality yet. In particular, the trans community is still really suffering. I would be very disappointed and am when it happens in people who call themselves queer or gay or lesbian or whatever, but also are disinterested in advocating for the freedom to exist for allies like, you know, communities of color, labor communities, people who have accessibility needs. These are folks who we're in many cases alongside us. These are many people who are members of our community already. These are people who advocate, whose interests align with ours. And so I think it's important for us not to just be like, okay, we got marriage, we're done. But also to say, okay, well, now what about trans people in the military? What about collective bargaining? What about 
ensuring that the you know Americans with Disabilities Act is properly enforced. People who are facing similar barriers to participation in society need the support of those of us who have acquired recognition. I'm careful not to call them other communities because they are not other. We overlap in many ways. So anyway, this is, again, a very long-winded answer to your question. Now is a particularly important time to, again, think about what we've achieved and how those achievements can be continued for more of us. So I think we're kind of heading into a direction maybe a little bit further than we had expected. But what do you think are some of these major barriers or challenges that we have to overcome as a community in the next year or two? This actually gets back a bit to the kind of work that I do, and that is understanding each other and listening to each other and aligning ourselves with people who may seem very different. I'm thinking back to Harvey Milk, who did a great job of forging relationships with the labor community in San Francisco. This is an important time for us not to just be engaging in self-interest, but also to be kind and to be conscientious of other people who are in need of help right now. To get more specific, I think for the LGBTQ community, we are seeing, oh boy, there's countless issues right now. For example, trans people serving in the military, defunding of HIV AIDS programs. Gosh, what else? There's uh, adoption, a huge, huge one. There are a lot of states that are taking steps to limit LGBT access to adoption. Dismantling of the Affordable Care Act. I mean, this is something that is a huge worry for me, for myself, selfishly, and then also just for all Americans. Losing the ban on pre-existing conditions exclusion would be devastating to so many people that I know. I just wrote an article about what's happening with HIV AIDS funding, and it's a huge concern. There are a lot of things going on right now that affect queer people and their allies. It's hard to know where to start. (laughs) You know, this may not exactly be the cultural reference that anybody expected, but Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure? <laughs> no, <Nope>, not expecting. <laughs> <No. laughs> Where, you know, the slogan that they repeat so many times, and I hope I get it right, is something like party on and be excellent to each other or be excellent to each other and party on. And I think being excellent to each other is particularly important right now. Yeah, I definitely agree with you everywhere you've gone. In light of what we talked about earlier, our community's attraction to entertainment, and I oftentimes perceive entertainment as a way of escaping as a way of removing ourselves from our everyday lives. But it seems like our community has a proclivity, I think is the proper word, to entertainment, to getting really kind of drawn into politics. Our community is known as having larger issues when it comes to drug and alcohol abuse, those kinds of things. What do you see our community being able to do to, say, distract ourselves away from those things to the more important things? And do you think that there's a financial aspect to that? Well, first of all, I'd say it's important to practice self-care and to give yourself permission to enjoy the dumb stuff that just makes you feel good. Literally, right before we had this conversation, we were watching Mamma Mia. And so I I was not watching that for political reasons. Um, That having been said, yes, you're right. Our community has done a lot with the arts, like the Normal Heart, for example, and Longtime Companion and projects like that. And even, you know, Moonlight and Love, Simon, using the arts to forge a connection between people, it is among our superpowers. I would say to not shame anyone for needing to just switch off the thinking side of their brain and just enjoy something that makes them feel good, because you will lose control of yourself if you try to be political all the time and try to always be fighting for a cause. It's great to do that, but it's also important to make sure that you are not running on fumes. Then, when you are ready to use the arts to do that, I think that's an incredibly important tool in our tool bag. You know, you look at a show like Will and Grace, for example, that introduced so many people to the gay community, to a particular segment of the gay community. And I certainly wouldn't say that the show is perfect and that it represents everybody's story, but it was a foot in the door for a lot of us. Mm -hmm. And it was great. It was important. Not only was it a dumb, laughy sitcom, but I think it moved the needle and it takes a lot of force. The needle is heavy. (laughs) The needle of public opinion is heavy. And it takes a lot of force and it takes a lot of people pulling on it. And so wherever that pull comes from, it could be from a sitcom. It could be from people live streaming themselves on YouTube or Twitch. It could be from having conversations in your community or taking a relative to see Call Me By Your Name. Although now that I say that, I'm not sure that I would recommend taking a relative to see Call Me By Your Name. (laughs) But uh, whatever it is, making sure that the kids in your life, that they're watching shows like Steven Universe, for example. Having some acknowledgement that we exist, we're there, we're happy, we can live fulfilling lives. Oh, man, that goes really, really far. Definitely. So I want to ask, 
LGBT people tend to gravitate towards the urban cores because there's some safety in numbers. Most of the people that listen to this podcast, that read our blog, we know from metric tools are typically in the bigger cities. My assumption is, is that maybe your audience is also. How do you think we can get such great messages as the ones you're creating, trying to bring disparate groups together, finding commonality between different groups? How do you think we can get that to the areas of the countries where we're not necessarily in an echo chamber? Yeah, that's a tough one. So the internet is great for doing that. Not everybody has access or the online literacy to find those things. And that's always going to be a challenge. I think part of it is providing resources that schools can use so that kids are getting age-appropriate information about the breadth of human experience and not you know, whitewashing over getting the kind of education that I got when I was young in the, in the 80s and 90s. Queer people may as well not even have existed when I was going to school. And it wasn't until I was in high school, late high school, that I really started to learn about Stonewall and the community that I could choose to be a part of if I wanted. Anyway, doing things like Illinois and California are doing to ensure that there is queer content in school curriculum. That's tremendous. Like that's going to change people's lives for the better in ways we can't even anticipate. For those of us that left the smaller towns for the urban cores to also remember that we've got family that we left behind and to engage with them about LGBT issues, you know, that's another way to do your part. I really admire the work that It Gets Better Project does in spreading a message that is so simple and so vital. And it's become sort of cliche at this point, the message that it gets better. But, you know, once again, boy, oh boy, does it make a big difference for someone who is struggling to hear that, especially someone who's geographically isolated. I completely agree with you here. I think one of the problems that often exists, and we are, I think, at a critical point for this issue in our community right now, is that every single group Every single flavor of the rainbow wants to be represented every single time we talk about LGBT. And I think we're even starting to get to the point where some of these within our community individuals are starting to disparage one another for not being as supportive as they think that they should be 100% of the time. How do we balance that? How do we balance the fact that <laughs> you're, you're going into some of these communities, especially rural communities, and you're talking about some of these issues, and they may be just starting to be okay with someone being gay or lesbian, but they're not that far along with this idea of someone being trans or someone being in a polyamorous relationship or whatever the case may be. How do we balance that as a community, and how do we become stronger as a community rather than kind of segregate and disperse? You know, I think this is a case of just reading the room and when you're having a conversation, you know, knowing what the person that you're talking to is ready for. I think it is great that more people are feeling comfortable asking for representation. I think it's great when more people can be represented. I like the adding of stripes to the flag. Mm. I think that there are a lot of people who felt left out I just did a video about Queer as Folk, the show Queer as Folk, which had a Pride episode in, I want to say, 2002, I think. It was set at Pittsburgh Pride in 2002. And something I noticed is that there's no discussion in this episode of trans issues, trans anything. I don't think the word bisexual is ever said. And also, there are almost no people of color in the entire episode. I think it's important for us to acknowledge that there have been people that Pride, in particular, has failed and that we should do better. That having been said, when you're having a conversation with someone who is maybe not comfortable or is still in progress on their journey to accepting people who are not like them. I guess you don't want to yank someone along and find that it's counterproductive and they've actually regressed because you're asking them to accept too much too soon. So I guess it's just recognizing that life is a journey and you know not everybody is ready to meet you where you're at sometimes sometimes what you have to do is say okay this is where i am right now and i'd like you to come meet me here eventually and i get that if you're not quite there yet because people change people come around and i think i want to believe people fundamentally want to be good they want to think of themselves as good people and so you know the best you can do is provide them with the target that you think being a good person is and to let them know what your expectation for them are. This is very vague. If you're in a situation where you're talking to relatives or someone who's like, I don't think trans people should be accepted or I don't believe in trans people or I think trans women are not really women or whatever unacceptable position they are taking, 
you know, you can let them know whatever you're comfortable with saying. Well, this is non-negotiable for me that trans people have a place of pride, for example. I hope that we can agree on this at some point. And what more can you do? Actually, as I'm saying this, this reminds me of something that I read when I was in high school. I was reading a book about essentially like how to be gay. It was a coming out guide for gay teenagers. And one of the things they recommended is if you're not comfortable talking about yourself or you're not comfortable talking directly about a particular issue, talk about the issue in relation to someone else. Talk about a character on TV or in a movie or whatever. You don't have to make it personal if that's going to end a conversation or prevent people from understanding each other. That's one approach to take is depersonalize a little bit by extrapolating to entertainment. Yeah. yeah. To me, I think that the trick is to have an authentic conversation with whomever you're, you're having a discussion with. And if you're going home to a, a state in the middle of the country for Thanksgiving, that you try to have an honest dialogue and not necessarily try to win an argument. Right. You know, kind of bring people yeah. just to, you know, a step at a time rather than trying to, you know, win the whole race and one turkey dinner. <laughs> yeah. A big part of that is just listening to people who are not where you're at and not just like ceding the floor to them being like, oh, okay, that's your position. But really listening and understanding like, why don't you like this particular thing? And then saying, well, okay, I understand. I hear what your problem is. And hopefully in that act of listening, you can understand if they have some misunderstanding or they have wrong information or they have some concern or fear. Hopefully in listening, you can find a way around whatever that obstacle is. Right. And that's part of the reason why David and I have been advocating for the last several years of trying to get more LGBT people into C and E-suite level positions and have more of them become entrepreneurs so that you know we can start to show society that we are more than our sexual orientation and our gender identity that we actually can contribute a lot to society and actually move society to a much better place than we are today. That's mm -hmm. part of the reason why we're trying to get more LGBT people into financial services, is especially transgender women and men, because there's a great opportunity for them to make a decent salary, providing people with some valuable help that can really you know, get them from point A to point B. And then all of a sudden, you know, society's not so concerned that there's a transgender person in the quote-unquote wrong bathroom. But they're more more happy that you know, they're providing value to society, to them even in particularly. Yeah. What that comes down to is, you know, like I said, listening to what people's concerns are and then confronting them with evidence to the contrary. And that can take the form of a qualified person who someone might not have thought was qualified and bringing them into an environment and being like, here they are. Look, this person is a valued member of the workforce. And what was your problem with bathrooms again? Because <laughs> seems like they're doing just fine. Right. Right. <laughs> so I think, you know, this is a great segue to the next question is, you know, there's a numerous ways that our community can sort of advance our rights. One of them is in the workplace. One of them is, you know, trying to introduce yourselves to people who aren't necessarily comfortable with you, as Harvey Milk suggested. But another is to donate our time and money. And specifically money, studies suggest that LGBT people only donate between 4 to 6% of our discretionary income to charitable causes, including LGBT causes. And we know that evangelicals are instructed to at least donate 10%, I think. Why do you think this disparity exists in our community? And what do you think we can do to maybe improve it to help advance our rights? Well, my guess would be one that we know LGBT people are in a position of economic disadvantage, particularly trans people. And so I think it is understandable that they may not have the resources to be able to give. Also, we are a community that is disparate. There's a large queer diaspora all over the world, and we don't have like a central governing body that is telling us yeah. you're a bad person if you don't give us money. And I think that's a good thing and a bad thing. That's part of it. We have a lot of different causes. There's a lot of things pulling on us, you know, so it's hard to be like, you know, donate to gay. Well, what does that mean? That could be a million different things. So we don't have some central money bucket that we could just give <laughs> our charitable money to. And so like we're confronted with all these choices. Well, you can give to the human rights campaign or you can give to Lambda Legal. Or you can give to Outserve, or you can give to your local STDI clinic or whatever. You can give to the arts, you give to youth services. We're confronted with so many choices that I think sometimes we're just paralyzed by that and we don't give it all. Yeah. I don't know what the solution to that is. You know, you can, I guess, give to one of those larger funds that decides, I think, I don't know if the Gill Fund does that or whatever, yes. but you know, one of those larger money buckets that makes the decision for you. If you were to ask me, what's the best place for me to 
do queer charitable giving, I would have a really tough time answering that. I might say the Victory Fund right now. It's pretty important to make sure the resources behind getting LGBT people elected. That's probably a big one. Lambda Legal is fighting a lot of fights. ACLU is fighting a lot of fights on our behalf. But again, this comes back to intersectionality because there are a lot of struggles happening right now that overlap with queer without being explicitly queer themselves. Like, you know, reunifying families that have been separated at the border, I think is, again, a cause that queer people should be supporting. The question of where do I put my money is so hard to answer for people in our community compared to, let's say, evangelicals who are told, okay, you know, in church, put your money in this specific basket and we'll take it from there. Right. Yeah, I guess there's a regular call to action in the churches, but the quote unquote gay churches that we go to, whether that's you know, the gym, as it's been often been called, or the various places that we congregate for entertainment, mm-hmm. for food, there isn't a call to action. And maybe it, it's something that we ourselves need to take it upon ourselves to say that we will be the reminder for our friends and our logical family, as opposed to biological family, as we've discussed earlier this week, that we should be encouraging each other. Make sure that you're supporting the organizations that have been there for decades supporting you to get to where you're at today. Yeah, exactly. It would be nice to, maybe this is a lazy web request that maybe somebody out there can put together just a, maybe this already exists, charitable giving hub where you can just go and answer a few questions about like, what are the causes important to you? And then at the end, it spits out like, okay, here's some like charities approved by, you know, have a high rating on GuideStar or whatever that you can feel confident giving money to that aligns with your interests. Yeah, right. that'd be a superb resource. Yeah. I feel like HRC or the Gill Foundation should work on that. <laughs> that'd be great. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. We just interviewed Tim Gill on a podcast several months ago, so maybe we can <laughs> plant the seed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, whisper in his ear. Well, you know, and it's interesting. It was actually on that podcast that he did point out that there are so many different places to give. And he said, not all of them are my passion. Some of them are, but some of them are not. And I'm going to try to affect the most change that I can by going with the ones that I'm most passionate about. That's the truth that's within each and every single one of us is whatever you're passionate about, make sure that's where you're putting your money because that's where you want to see and you can affect change. And when someone comes knocking on your door, tactfully say that's not necessarily something that I give to, not that it's a bad thing. I just am passionate about giving my money to this particular organization or this particular cause. Yeah, that's uh, something that, in fact, I've heard from other philanthropists. One of the people who was a major backer of the Prop 8 lawsuit, that was the case that restored marriage in California, and I worked on that lawsuit behind the scenes. They told me that they give money and they support causes that they think are achievable. Mm -hmm. And so they said that they weren't giving money to issues like climate change because they didn't see a win state for that. Instead, they were contributing funds to outside of the marriage equality thing. They were contributing funds towards this project to preserve natural areas in Malibu was one of their other causes. And they're like, okay, that we can win. We can achieve that. Marriage equality, that we can win. We can get that. Climate change, nobody's made the case for me that there's a good ending there. So they weren't giving their money. And not only is that an extremely grim thing to hear from somebody, but also it's a good lesson in just like how to make your dollars count. Yeah, I like that. Tim's advice or his strategy is to spend his time where he can spread equality as fast as possible. That's his strategy. What was interesting, what he said was that it wasn't necessarily that he was going to get the end game. He was not going to reach equality for every single person. But if he could take a major step forward, that's where he would take that major step forward. I think it was he who said that progress does not happen in a straight line forward. And so sometimes there are You mentioned pushing the needle really hard, and sometimes we have to push the needle really hard, and sometimes it gets pushed right back at us. And so we have to take those wins when we can get them. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Not stop fighting, (laughs) but take the wins that we can get. (laughs) Right. And, you know, this is something Cleve Jones said to me. Cleve Jones was a major HIV AIDS activist and now labor activist. If you do not ask for everything immediately, you'll never get anything eventually. Some achievements are just out of reach for the moment. It doesn't mean that you can't keep your eyes focused on them. Right. Yeah. Get whatever wins you can. Yeah. Exactly. So this has been a great, diverse conversation. I think this is probably the most diverse conversation we've had on queer money because <laughs> right. we're usually very focused on queer money. So I kind of want to bring it back home. We have a private queer money Facebook group, and one of our members plugged to the private queer money Facebook group. Anybody who wants to be a member, Allison asked, "What inspired you to merge Dungeons and Dragons?" and drag queens into a theater show and then a podcast. 
How did that even happen? <laughs> yeah, you know, it happened sort of, it started as a joke. We were, for a long time, my partner and I were just saying, oh, Dungeons and Drag Queens, wouldn't that be funny? And then eventually we're like, okay, we've been talking about this forever. Let's just see if we can do it. We're in a lucky position here in Seattle where it's a very experimental scene. And I mean experimental literally in that people want to try stuff and iterate and improve. When we approached some of the drag queens that I knew through my LGBT work and said, okay, here's what we want to do. We want to get a bunch of people together into a room. We want to play Dungeons and Dragons and we want to make it funny. They were like, well, that's weird, but okay, let's give it a shot. And so we had drag queens who were willing to give it a try. We had a venue that was willing to give us a shot. I and my partner had never organized a live show. I'm trying to think if we've, I can't think of a time that we had ever done anything like this, like booked a bar to put on a show on a stage. So there was every reason in the world that it should have failed. You know, also many of our drag queens, only one of them had ever played D&D before. <laughs> that was my next question. <laughs> yeah. So there was a lot of firsts with this project, but we gave it a shot. And also like crucially, we had an audience that was willing to give it a chance and people who were like, okay, this is new. I'm not sure what this is, but it sounds good. So let's see if it works. And to everyone's shock, it worked. It's uh, <laughs> something we could really be proud of. Cool. So that was our inspiration. Then, you know, the show was such a success. The live show, we we're selling out. We we're like, okay, let's make a podcast. So people who can't make it to the live show are able to listen to the show online. And so now we've got Queens of Adventure, our podcast that's at queensofadventure.com, where you can subscribe and also get on the mailing list to find out. We've got live shows in different cities now. So oh, nice. uh, you can find it when we're doing live shows. So we've got everything there at queensofadventure.com to bring the show to as many people as possible. And again, you know, on the surface, it's just a goofy, fun time, a bunch of laughs, a bunch of drag queens telling a story over the course of many episodes of their ongoing adventures. And then my hope with the show is that people listen to it and feel that they're part of a larger community. We're all part of a big band of queer adventurers who are fighting for each other and we've got each other's back. And also that if you're queer and you don't feel like you have a place in games, if you're a gamer and you don't feel like you're welcome among queers, that you can take a second look at that and be like, oh, well, maybe there are friends out there that I'm waiting to meet. <laughs> I yeah, love it. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a great conversation. We've enjoyed it. Thank you. Yes. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you, Matt, for sharing your inspiring story and unique insights into the state of queer life and culture today. For any of our listeners who want to work for themselves or create a side hustle with their passions, this queer money is invaluable. If you like this episode, please take a screenshot on your phone of this episode, share it on Instagram along with your favorite point or quote from today's show, and tag at Queer Money Podcast. Thank you, and we'll talk with you next week. To learn more about our sponsor, Mass Mutual, or to find an advisor, visit MassMutual.com.